Jack, where are you from? I'm from Stratford, Ontario. Where is that? It's in Canada. It's, well, I knew, I actually knew Ontario, but is it outside Toronto somewhere? It's near Toronto, yeah. Okay, but we're, okay, where do you live now? Now I live in Brooklyn, New York City. How long have you been here? Almost two years. Do you feel really American yet? I'm hoping that I'm getting there. I think I still drop my O's in my abouts. You definitely do. But here's the real question is, do you know how you know when you feel like an American? No. It depends on how you feel when you see fireworks on the 4th of July. Is that true? Is that a thing? Oh, that's definitely true. Anyways, now that you've been in New York for a while, I'm sure you know that the most spectacular fireworks display around happens here at the, on the East River. I, I do know this. I saw it last year, and I have to admit, it truly is spectacular. You felt something. I felt something. When I was watching it, I don't know. I can't remember for sure for now if I felt, hey, I've made it. I'm an American. I'm here. But I did think one thing, which was, this is an insane amount of fireworks. Like, this just doesn't stop. It was more fireworks than I'd ever seen in my life. That was for sure. Well, anyway, Popular Mechanics wants to find out how they put that fireworks display together, and we thought... Who better than somebody who's trying to become an American? So maybe you want to go? I couldn't agree more. I'm your man. I'll get, I'll get to the bottom of these fireworks. You'll get to <laughs> Can you also find out more about how the country started? Yeah, I'll look into that. I'll do a little research about what this country is along the way. Okay, I'd feel better if we... We need, we need some, like, patriotic, like, um... What, was it flutes or, um... Is it they piper Pipers, music? yeah. I, say, pipe, I think they're pipers, right? pipes. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and a, is a bugle? Is there a bugle involved? I don't know if we need a bugle yet. It's I think the just pipes, pipes. It's just the pipes along my journey. Yeah. To America. Yeah. From Popular Mechanics, this is How Your World Works. I'm Kevin Dupsick. And I'm Jack Dillon. And in honor of Independence Day, this is going to be an extra patriotic episode. We're going to take a look at three quintessentially American things. That's right. We're going to look at that great American game, baseball. And specifically, a new camera that uses motion capture technology to look at the biomechanics of a pitch. Then we're going to take a drive down the two-lane blacktops of the American heartland and find out if Samsung's new technology for passing trucks is stupid or amazing. And my journey to understanding America takes me to a barge in the East River, where I will talk to Gary Souza, the show designer of Macy's 4th of July fireworks display. But first, let's play ball. So joining me now to talk about baseball is Popular Mechanics editorial assistant Cameron Johnson. Hello. So we're going to talk about baseball somewhat in protest because this, in my opinion, is the worst time of the year for sports. It is, absolutely. Yeah. Oh, so you agree. You oh, used to God. pitch. I know, I know. But the beginning of a baseball, I, can't, I don't have time for that. Yeah, well, I just feel like Stanley <clears throat> Cup's over. NBA Finals are over. College World Series ended. UVA. Go yeah, Hoops. there's nothing like the you know the NFL is just a memory. And I personally prefer basketball anyway. But for those people who are oh, not yeah. me, I'm just I'm counting down the days till college basketball. Football will be great. But anyways, but we are here to talk about something that is kind of exciting during the baseball season, even though it involves the Tampa Bay Devil Rays. Yeah, they're officially only the Rays now, though. Actually, they're the, they're only the Rays, Tampa Bay Rays, and apparently I like how we got rid of Devil from Devil Rays, but like Redskins still. <laughs> That's a good point. It's all because the, the, the Rays owner isn't uh, Dan Snyder. That's, that's where they get you. Yeah. Um, but so what we're here to talk about is uh, a camera that captures pitches. 
Yeah, basically, it's actually well, it's eight cameras, but it's it's a super high speed camera that catches the the biomechanics of the pitcher, and it is remarkable, honestly, the technology because they used to be able to do it with like markers, like you see motion capture stuff with people mm-hmm. with markers on all over their body and wearing like body suits, but that's just not the same as in game. And with these cameras, you don't need markers. So you can just uh, capture a pitcher's performance in game, and then crunch all that data, and and review it, uh, not instantaneously yet because the computer technology is not mm-hmm. there, but pretty quickly. So just so it's eight cameras. Describe what's the setup like. It's eight cameras, and they're positioned at different all around the stadium. They're positioned at different points. Um, they some of them are like right behind home plate. Mm-hmm. Uh, some of them are up to like hundreds of feet away. Yeah, which. They uh, the technology was based off of uh, the Connect technology, like the Xbox Connect. Really? Yeah. Well, he said when he got the idea, who's uh, he? Michael Eckstein of Kinetrax, who's the CEO of the company. He said that the idea came a couple years ago when he was talking with someone in the Phillies organization, and they were lamenting at how bad uh, Roy Halladay was doing. <laughs> the person with the Phillies asked him, or just said, "Wouldn't it be great if we could capture the, the do the motion capture in game?" and he got the idea, so he went to. He had some friends at Microsoft who worked with uh, with Connect, and he said, mm-hmm. he said that he pitched them on using Connect for this kind of thing, and they said that Connect wouldn't work because it only has a range of eight to fourteen feet. <laughs> and, and like, unfortunately, pitchers are not Xbox players. Exactly, That's, there's a real hole in your logic here. Exactly, buddy. and they only and they only capture thirty frames per second, which wouldn't work because that didn't even work for Peter Jackson on The Hobbit. How is it going to work for live baseball? <laughs> right. Um, Naturally. So, yeah. So they developed this technology over, over the next couple of years. And so now they can do it. Uh, they can capture it up to a couple hundred feet away. They can capture it at 275 to 300 frames per second, which okay, is so that's, significantly better than Peter Jackson on The Hobbit. And it uh, must be an insane amount of data. It's, it's 1.3 gigabytes per pitch per camera. <laughs> so an entire game is two terabytes. And I asked okay. him about it with the, the, the problem with all that data. And he said that. The data is not the problem. It's the computing power needs to catch up to it. So yeah. the the whole the, the the capturing the data is completely fine. Everything mm-hmm. is is cutting edge. There's there's no improvements that need to be made. It's the actual being able to process the data, which makes it just so difficult at this point to do it yeah. quickly. Like apparently ESPN called them and asked if they could do it between innings, and he said, "No, there's absolutely no way that they can do it between innings." That's, yeah. That, that that's uh, that's way too much computing power that they don't have. It doesn't exist at this point. Yeah. So you have okay. So you have eight cameras. They're stationed at intervals around the stadium. They're all focused on the pitcher. They take footage as he's pitching at a really high frame rate. Mm-hmm. And you said something about this being markerless. What are they actually capturing? I mean, like when you play back this footage, if you're the Devil Rays or the the Rays, excuse me, what are you actually like? What are you honing in on here? They give you a rudimentary skeletal representation of the, the pitcher's motion they, so they can see where there's uh, stress points. Uh, like if you're the trainer and you want to review it, you can see where he's putting stress on his body so he can fix that in his d- delivery. Or they're seeing just the general motion. So if, if a pitching coach wants to know why his curveball doesn't work the way that it used to, he can see the, to like a very specific degree uh, exactly where his arm is now compared to where it was then, and he can hopefully fix that. Yeah, I think this is really fascinating with pitching specifically because pitching to me, I mean, as far as I know, pitching has got to be one of the most stressful things in sports on, on a person's body? body. Yeah, I remember a, f- 
well, I was going to say a few years ago, but it's been a long time. Here's how long. It was when Tim Linscum was really good still. Oh, God. Um, Sports Illustrated had a cover story about how he had this really unorthodox delivery, but that he was just like wringing every ounce of power out of his mm-hmm. frame because he yeah. wasn't like a built guy. Or as a He's, Red Sox fan, I think a lot about Pedro Martinez, right? Who's yeah. like this small guy, yeah. but was, a, you know, through with like through heat. Yeah. You Pedro know? Martinez actually had really, really long fingers, which is how he got an extra snap on the ball. Yeah. So can you see that in these cameras? Probably. It's part of the skeleton. Yeah, it's part of his part. Uh, but, but it is. I mean, I think it's kind of amazing. And I think actually a lot of sports fans really appreciate that pitchers are getting like these insane forces out of their body. Um, and I mean, you think about the fact that like football, people are getting hurt all the time. There's all kinds of surgeries that people get. But baseball is the one that has a surgery that everybody knows the name. Yeah, Tommy right? Johns. So the, okay, so the Rays are using this. Are they just looking at their own pitchers or is the idea that they're going to like understand the mechanics of pitching in general better? What's their kind of plan here? They right now are just, I think they're just looking at their own pitchers and they don't really know what they're going to do with it. They just knew that this was the next step in data analytics in sabermetrics or Moneyball, however you want to call it. Uh, Michael Goodman actually called it Moneyball on steroids, which I thought was an odd <laughs> phrase. Uh, yeah, it for seems like you know too soon. I don't know. <laughs> I guess Moneyball on Barry Bonds, but they just they knew that they they had to get out in front of everything and and actually get it installed so they can figure out what they want to do with it. And apparently, since uh, the news has been broken the past couple of weeks about this technology about Kinetrax, uh, they've gotten phone calls from every MLB team that they want to talk with them about it. The U.S. Olympic Committee, the PGA, the NFL, the NBA, and uh, the Cricket League over in the United Kingdom. The Cricket League. The Cricket League. How you could do it in something like the NBA or the NFL where everything happens so fast and there's so much motion. But I feel like with the PGA, that makes a lot of sense because it's just a person standing and swinging and looking at the grass and taking a practice shot. And here he comes now. Yeah, Zen Uh, Cohen's. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, all right, Cameron. Well, uh, I think this makes baseball maybe, you know, slightly more exciting than it normally is. So I appreciate you talking through it with me. No trouble. I heard that you'd asked for something to prove this puzzle, the new world, and to define America her athletic democracy. Therefore, I send you my poems that you behold in them what you wanted. Those are the words of Walt Whitman, American poet and fellow Brooklynite, from his book, Leaves of Grass, which was published, interestingly enough, on July 4th, 1855. And here, in fact, are some other things that also took place on the 4th of July, some of which you may know. The 4th of July commemorates the date when Congress adopted the Declaration of Independence, Thomas Jefferson, who drafted the Declaration of Independence, and John Adams, both founding fathers and U.S. presidents, died on the same day, July 4, 1826. President James Monroe died on July 4, 1831. U.S. President Calvin Coolidge was born on July 4, 1872. And did you know? On July 4th, Americans are expected to consume more than 150 million hot dogs, according to the National Hot Dog and Sausage Council. There is a real council. But more importantly, on July 4th, 2015, over 54,000 fireworks will explode in the skies over Manhattan. And the man in charge of overseeing it all is Gary Souza. G-A-R-Y Souza, S-O-U-Z-A, Vice President of Pyro Spectaculars by Souza. And I'm the show designer for the Macy's 4th of July fireworks. Now at this point, more than a few of you might be thinking, how do I get Gary Souza's job? 
Well, I should point out, he had a bit of a head start on you. His family goes way back in fireworks, over 100 years of working in the business. So you've been, you've been working on this show for 33 years, did you say? Yes, I have. 33 years with the, the Macy's 4th of July fireworks. I started out as a, my family's been uh, involved in fireworks for over 100 years now. And, and for my dad and I came out and started working on this show back in the early 80s. And uh, I've been coming ever since. When you had a part-time job, you, you had a much cooler part-time job than all of your friends, I'm betting. Oh, I, I had a great job. I mean, it was, I called it babysitting or, or my, it was my babysitting uh, situation and my dad would take me every weekend with him and I'd run around in the yard and you know out where our warehouses were with the fireworks while he worked on them and I'd just be playing in the area and at the end of the day I used to get to pick up whatever scraps were laying around and put it all into a, a shell a bomb casing and then we take it out in our little test area and and, and I get to light it and then we go home <laughs> that's amazing <laughs> Earlier this week, I met with Gary at an undisclosed or rather undisclosable location somewhere on Staten Island. We were on a pier, and as we talked, there were five different barges that were being loaded and rigged up with fireworks. All of the barges had been given names. There was red, white, blue, silver, and gold. And on Saturday night, each one of these barges will be positioning itself at a different point along the East River where they will launch their fireworks. Okay, so Saturday night, 4th of July... Uh, what will you be doing? Well, really, the the drama on the 4th of July kind of starts around 4 or 5 o'clock when the tugboats come, and five t- tugboats will come out and hook up to our barges, and then our crew will start to, to man it and, and take their, their fluids and their food and their table and chairs and, and take uh, get into their container, and these tugboats will start to tow them up the river and put them into position and really now they're they're separated from from us if we have no longer can just walk on and off the pier and all be together now on the decks of each one of these barges are literally thousands of fireworks the fireworks are loaded into aerial shells which are loaded into these devices called terminals and each terminal is connected to an igniter the igniter, as you might have guessed, is the part that lights the fuse of the fireworks, sending it into the air. But, rather crucially, it will not go off unless the specific signal to do so is sent. And that signal all comes from the master control on the shore. So where are you sitting when this is happening? I get, I get to sit at a Macy's c- command center uh, with uh, you know the local authorities from every agency you can imagine and we're all you know looking over my shoulder making sure everything goes well so it's really not any pressure it is a lot of pressure virtually the entire city of new york is watching to see what gary is about to do next but first something unseen has to happen the barges have to sync up with headquarters they have to make sure that they're receiving the signal that tells them when and what firework to detonate so they do this by sending off a few test shots Nothing big, nothing anyone would notice. But when those test shots go off, they know that they are receiving and ready to go. And now we know, after we fire a couple little testers on each barge, you're getting this signal, you're having some firing, we're going to have a show. And then we just sit and wait. And, and that's the hardest part, just the, that big anxious couple of hours where you're just sitting there watching, waiting for the sun to set. It's something that we've, you know, I've been doing for 33 years, so it's, it's uh, you know, it doesn't get any more relaxing uh, the day of the show until that first shell goes off. And then it's, you know, kind of a release for me to say, wow, that vision that has been in my mind is now in the sky. 
but in order for that vision to get into the sky, it requires a lot of planning. The signal that headquarters is broadcasting out to the barges is a time code. It is a script that is telling certain fireworks to fire at a certain time, and this is all pre-written, pre-written by Gary. Think of the fireworks like an orchestra, and Gary is the composer. You've got your red starburst fireworks, those are like your bassoons. Then you've got some blue kind of sparkly ones, those are like your oboes. And you've got each one of these fireworks in your orchestra, and you need to tell them when and how you want them to play. Each location of the barge, each mortar, is given an address, and that address is assigned to a specific shell, say the shells containing the red glaring fireworks. So, when the National Anthem plays and it gets to the part about the rocket's red glare, that's when Gary's going to put that address in his composition. That's when he's going to tell that address to fire now. Except, it's not that simple. What happens when you design the show is you say, well, I'd like rocket's red glare to, to hit on the red. Well, you need to fire the fireworks anywhere from uh, three to five, seven, eight seconds prior to that. And we tested all the fireworks to make to time them and see how long does it take for that red to go from the water to the sky to turn red. So we have to back time it and the computer system will help us to do that. So Gary takes all of that information and uses it to compose his score, the series of addresses that are broadcast out to the barges. But even with all that planning, there are still things that can go wrong. So you, you take all that and then you got to make sure you have all the equipment and the space on the barge and uh, all of the fireworks need to be packaged correctly with the right address on them so that when you get out to the, to the site, when they load that into the mortar, the guy that's loading it in has no idea whether it's red or pink or green. He's just following that address. So he's going to hook it up to that address. So you got to make sure it gets into the computer, that it's labeled and packed with the right address, and it's loaded in the right mortar with the right address. So these are covering the decks of the barge. Then each one has a unique address, and they're all going to be going off at a different time. Correct. All the fireworks have their, that, that unique address has a unique time that's assigned along the script. And how do you, this might be like a stupid question, but you have to keep these things that are going off from setting the other ones off by accident, right? This is a... Yeah, you know, how you set the fireworks up on the barge is also very unique, uh, uniquely challenging because, you know, you have wind to deal with and, and you don't want to pre-ignite the firework next to it because it doesn't matter all that effort you've gone into to create that neat address and have this effect in the sky. If you fire it at the wrong time, because the one next to it happened to touch it off, it's kind of unfortunate. Yeah. Have you ever had anything like that happen? Yeah, there's always little things that happen in a show. You know, like I say, sometimes it's man, you know, somebody, man or woman, loaded it into the wrong address, connected it to the wrong address. Somebody could have packed it wrong. And sometimes we get stuff from the, the manufacturers that it says one thing and its label is totally different which is why we have to test it um, before we get here. So that usually is not the case. But the biggest issue of working with a show like Macy's where you have five barges doing the same thing, when one doesn't, oh, look at that. And everybody points it out to you. Oh, I saw that one happy face right in the middle of all the green peonies. So you have to be how really do, How does that make you feel? Oh, it's kind of a bummer. But uh, hopefully they don't know this. Hopefully it doesn't happen too often, but yeah. How it is. You always see your mistakes. Always seem to find those. And then when you watch the video after, it becomes even more obvious. Yeah, I'm sure you're noticing it probably more than anybody else. I think you're right. But all this, though, all this equipment and planning and technique that we've been talking about, 
it's all actually making this sound easier than it is. It really is. Because there's one step that we didn't talk about yet, and that is how do you choose which fireworks should go where? How do you listen to a piece of music and choose how you will play something that is exploding in the air at the right place at the right time? That requires an artistic sensibility. And when I was talking to Gary, I got the sense that to him, this is absolutely an art form. So I asked him how he does it. How do you think about you know, making the choices that you do. Your, your medium is fireworks. Um, so you need a material there. You need to know about the size of them and how and the shape they're going to make and the colors they're going to make and how high they'll go. And you have to think about what it kind of means to kind of complement the music. How do, you, how do you go about thinking about that? Yeah, you know, you're, you're right. And, and it is a, a very interesting art form because in, it, it is three-dimensional. And, uh, you know, it's, it's not like you have an eraser. And it's not like you get a second chance. Um, you get one chance. And what happens is, you know, to me, when you listen to music, there's, I, I get, a, I get a, a sense of something, whether it's a color or a mood, um, a passion, a feeling, an emotion. Um, you, you get some sort of sense from each song or, or each part of a song. Uh, some make me want to dance. Some make me feel red. Um, John Philip Sousa, when he transitions into tubas, sounds like it should be rumbling noise and thundery. Um, piccolos sound like whistles. So we try to duplicate that. We also have these patterns, you know, uh, there's star patterns, heart patterns, uh, the heart shape, the happy face shape, um, jellyfish, uh, we have octopi. Um, another one new this year is a crescent-shaped moon in the Macy's show. So those are two-dimensional bursts in a three-dimensional world. So unfortunately, how they burst might look different to people wherever you happen to be looking. So, so you make, so you essentially you create your own kind of score of fireworks um, to go to match the score of music, and then that's all got to be translated into the computer. So is that right? Yeah, I mean, that's a step. I mean, it's, it's, for me, it's a, a several week process, you know, and that you, you start off with listening to the music over and over. Once you kind of get an idea and you start writing down, this is what I want here, I want to do this in this segment, then I literally draw it with crayon, you know, pens and pencils and colored pencils. I draw it, not perfectly, it, because it, it won't be used again. This is for me just to get an idea of what it looks like. I'll, I'll, put little uh, music symbols where it's going to whistle or, or boom where it's going to be loud. And, and, and then I get this whole track of that written out on paper, and then I see how it all fits together. And once I do that, and we start putting it into the computer in a way that when the computer's playing, it has a, the time code coming by, and I say, okay, right now I want this to happen. So all of that is, is just one part of it. Then after I've done the entire show, in the computer, I will take that and create each image from my, I have a database over the years of fireworks that we shoot that I've created in Photoshop. Then I'll take the Photoshop and I'll take, create a whole template for each segment of the show. And I'll look at that and I'll play it with the music and I'll put that into PowerPoint as we go through the PowerPoint and just change slides to the music. And that's how we come up and say, okay, this is going to look great. All right. So now all that work has finally been done and it's the big night. 
The boats have sent off their test fireworks and are receiving. The fire department and various city officials have given Gary the go-ahead. The sun has finally set in the sky. There is still one thing that needs to happen. Even though the composition is automated, somebody still has to press fire on 54,000 fireworks. Yeah, there's, there's a button that says go that, that sends the music out. But, uh, you know, we get the go and the approval from the local authorities that everything is, is all safe and in the right spot. And once that, that's go, it's really okay. Three, two, one, roll. Once it rolls, we're rolling. So who presses that button? Who sends that signal? Well, that comes from our sound truck, but it goes through me. Okay. How does that feel? I, I'm ready to see it by that point. I'm ready to go. It feels great. Thank you again to Gary Souza and Christine Oliver of Macy's for your help with that interview. All right, it's time to play a game of Stupid or Amazing, where we take a look at a new piece of technology and decide if it's going to make our lives better, worse, annoy us, kill us. And I have with me Pipe the Mechanics Editor-in-Chief, Ryan D'Agostino. Hello. And also Ezra Dyer, our Autos Editor. What we're taking a look at this week is called Life Truck. It's from Samsung. It's a video camera and video screen pairing that straps on a semi and hopefully will save your life. Here's what happens. So you're driving down a two-lane road. You come up behind a tractor trailer that's going way too slow. You need to pass it. The only way to know if it's safe to pass is to swerve into the oncoming traffic lane and either dart back because you're about to get run over or make a move and go for it. So here's Samsung's idea. They take a wireless video camera, they put it in the grill of the truck, they take a giant video screen, actually it's a four-part video screen, put it on the back of the truck, and broadcast what the camera sees. So the idea now is, you pull up behind this truck, you need to pass it, and instead of having to swerve into oncoming traffic, you just look at this screen, you make your move, you're good to go. Some people call that a distraction, Samsung calls it life truck. What do you guys think? Okay, you want me to tell you? I want you to tell me. Okay, this is amazingly stupid for a number of reasons but first of all you're giving people one more thing to pay attention to when they're on the road that people barely have the bandwidth to just drive their car and stay in their lane and not run into that tractor trailer truck from behind so you're adding a tv screen to the mix second liability say there's some kind of fault with the system or there's a bug on the camera or something uh someone pulls out and they get smucked then they're you know samsung's getting sued freightliners getting sued uh, you know, uh, gentle giant move, whatever truck you're behind full of chickens, they're getting sued. <laughs> so there's that aspect. See, I don't know. I disagree. I think it's, I think it's amazing. And I'll tell you why. I think you're right about the distraction point. And yet, I mean, it's kind of like when you, you go to a, a sporting event or something and you're sitting there watching the live sporting event and they also have a screen up above and you have this weird tendency to watch the screen even though the game is happening right in front of you or at a rock concert it's bizarre but we do it anyway but people the cars right now all kinds of you know the the infotainment system the, your dashboard is already like you know you're already flying a plane you got a movie screen going you got two dvd you know screens in the back seat i think the safety benefits are outweighed by the fact that this is one more thing to look at and you're probably not going to just sit behind this truck for seven hours and be watching it what are you going to be missing by watching the screen? A, you know, are you really going to miss a deer popping out? I don't know. I think it works. It's going to make regular highway driving easier and safer. Well, see, so I think, I mean, maybe, maybe I'm the stupid one for saying this, but 
I think that driving still needs to have some of these things that require a little bit of, a little bit of risk so that you stay sharp, right? I mean, I, I've always liked passing on two-lane roads because I feel like it's like the most dangerous legally sanctioned thing that there is left. I kind of like the degree of difficulty. But I think that, yeah, I think that not having like this easy thing to look at, you stay more alert. Like I don't like using cruise control because I'm always worried that I'm going to like just sit back and relax in the driver's seat. Um, but I also think that... So th let's make driving harder to just so you I, stay alert. I think we should. Um, but I actually, I also blindfold. think that... Blindfold. You should try a blindfold. Um, but actually, we don't ad advocate or condone that, though, by <laughs> any means. I do think the tailgating thing to me is an issue. So I was thinking about this because it, it says like on Samsung's website that the truck's no longer operational, but they've proved the technology works, which I think just means that they know that they have a camera they can use. Um, but part of the reason is that they just made one truck because it's just not cost effective. So I was thinking like, well, I, I would... I bet the most expensive part is this big screen. Is this but a you, thing that can strap onto any truck? Isn't that well, the I th idea? I think it could in theory, but... If you make the screen smaller, which would make it cheaper, then you have to get really close to watch it. And that's like the last vehicle that you want to be too close behind. So I don't think the idea is stupid, but I, th I can't see a practical way of producing this thing that would end up being amazing. Also, a 42-inch flat screen is like 200 bucks these days. They can start cracking. No, it could be a, like a movie that. screen. Wouldn't you still have to get pretty close to see a 42-inch no, flat screen? No, to cover the whole back of the truck, because you don't need to see detail. You just need to see if there's a massive traffic jam on the other side of this truck. So, Do you yeah. think there's any downside for the truck drivers to having this on their truck? I mean, I always, I always assume that every truck driver hates every non-truck driver on the road. And if the truck driver becomes like an object of even more attention... That's, that can't be right if you, them, right? If you, listen, if you listen to the CD, you'll find you're right. <laughs> <laughs> no, we should go to the phones. If you're a truck driver out there, give us a call and, and tell us what, what you think about Kevin's point. We're standing by. And your vote's stupid, Ezra? I'm voting stupid still. Sorry, maybe I'm a troglodyte. I'm stuck in the past, but uh, I do it the old-fashioned way. I hang back, and then I get a good head of steam going before I pass that truck. All right. Well, my vote was stupid too, and it was mostly because I like danger. So I think I'm the troglodyte. I like. I just like the thought of it. I like the idea. I think it's potentially. Can I qualify my answer to potentially amazing? Like it's. I don't want to just shoot it down as stupid. I think it's. I think their their heads in the right place, but uh, it might need some work. Potentially amazing is my vote. Okay. I think we have to take hard lines I'm sorry, from now on in this game. Potentially though. amazing. That's all right. All right. All right, guys. Thanks for thanks for joining me. Thanks. All right. All right. See you later, Ezra. Bye. All right. That's How Your World Works for July 3rd, 2015. From Popular Mechanics, happy Independence Day. We hope you have a good time with your fireworks and just be careful. We'd like to thank Laura Mayer and Annie Bowers from Panoply and Popular Mechanics Editor-in-Chief Ryan D'Agostino. And thank you again to Gary Souza and Christine Oliver from Macy's. Thanks for listening. We'd love to hear what you think of the show. Please subscribe on iTunes and leave us a review. You can also find us at popularmechanics.com slash podcasts, where you can find a link to the Samsung technology that we talked about during Stupid or Amazing and pictures from Jack's fireworks investigation. We also want to thank Rode for giving us the studio arms that hold up our microphones and Sony for giving us the headphones for the show. That's all for us today. Thanks for listening.